Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, Join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hello, this is the Helping Friendly Podcast. My name is RJ. I'm here with my co-hosts, Jonathan, Matt, and Brad. What's up, guys? Hi. Howdy, howdy. It's it's a Brad gave a silent hi, which everyone will be able to hear. Um, this is a this is a special episode. We're we're back for our November 1995 collaboration with Under the Scales and Beyond the Pond. Um, we are we are deep into our winter uh, planning with these November shows. Uh, I, I'm planning. I'm, I'm planning. I'm wearing sweatshirts and like winter knit caps and, and patchwork pants from 1995 just to, to kind of get in the spirit i know matt has some special 1995 uh, features for us so <laughs> yeah um but this is um it's fun because this fall tour obviously of, of 1995 spans months and months but um brad and i saw our first shows in in october i know jonathan saw some shows in november and it's always fun to go back to these these shows these are amazing shows to go through so i'm excited 
What about you guys? It's a pretty good band at this time. Yeah. Pretty good yeah. rock band. People seem to gloss over and just go straight to December, but there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Seriously, that, great stuff. I, seriously, I, I'm, great stuff. I'm excited we, about it. We're going to try to add to what uh, Tom discussed last week uh, with, with Brad Sands on Under the Scales, which I hope everyone heard. That was a fascinating conversation. And there's some stuff that I think we'll reference because there were a couple interesting things that they talked about that I didn't know before. But we, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want to say, first, this is a, a kind of a historic uh, moment for our country in that like there's been whether you want us to just stay in our lane as podcasters or whatever i think everyone agrees it's been a pretty wild four years and i'm not going to stay in my lane as a podcaster in that it's been really really chaotic and insane and i was thinking today that four years ago in, in november of 2016 first of all i didn't i didn't even have my second and third kids yet um we didn't we hadn't even formed osiris matt had yet to like you know, join, join our crew in a, in a serious way. There was, I mean, Jonathan, you, you had, you had been with us more or less from the beginning, as far as I can tell, but you know, there, (laughs) this like four years, it's been really, really long four years and really intense because at least for me, there's like, you know, I got, I got two more kids, I got a business. And also we got this president who's now, who now appears to be leaving soon, which is to me personally incredible, but I don't feel like we often look back and think about all the progress we've made as a show, which I think is like, I want to thank our listeners for like just sticking with us and growing and telling your friends and continuing to come back because we, I mean, I guess maybe we still would do this if we didn't have any listeners, but it's nice to have listeners and to have people who who like what we're talking about. But it's been crazy, guys. Think about how much different it is now, even just for us as podcasters, than it was four years ago. It's pretty pretty wild. RJ, I think to to, to answer your question, it's been it's been a it's been a wonderful, fun project that's turned into something where we've met a bunch of people and made great friends. And um, we're lucky enough that other people listen, because I think you're right, we would have done it anyway. Um, <laughs> right, which is, is a funny, but um, we're glad that other people can also enjoy it. And, and Matt and Jonathan enjoyed it so much that they, they're like, we can actually make it better. And we're like, you're, you're right, you probably can. Yeah. So um, I'm glad that, you know, that's that's um, helped us out too. I would say that both Jonathan and Matt came in and immediately made made it better in, in different times. It's we're lucky. Um, I feel very I feel very fortunate, like as a as a person and a, as a podcaster today. The audience has grown. We have had amazing guests. We've had really fun sponsors. We launched this network that brought a lot more attention and people and collaboration. Um, and and you're right. Like that's that's something. I don't know. Like I got to launch a company during the Trump administration and I probably like those things are so separate in my mind, but you're right. It's interesting. It'll be interesting if like, yeah, in the future people will just skip it over like those four years in America. Yeah. That was just like a thing. Let's move on to then when things got normal again. But, um, but we're, we're going to keep, we're going to keep going no matter what I think. (laughs) What do you guys think about these beacon jams that have been going on? I I, I wound up not sharing this on the internet the other night during the show, but I was, a little bit taken aback. And I know I always say on this show, like there's people have different reasons for loving this music. They get different things out of it, but I was 
like so like the second that um they showed the logo and they had the like the droney intro starting like before the logo even went away on the screen i was like they're gonna do ghost of the forest tonight and i was so excited about it because of the shitty week that led up to it and all the stress and like overeating and not sleeping and stuff i was like this is perfectly timed to be this kind of cathartic release for emotional release for everybody and instantly i started seeing everybody on twitter being like oh god why is he doing ghost of the forest this week but can he just play like blissful upbeat jams and stuff to like help us forget <laughs> about everything and like now we have to actually think about our feelings and it was so weird to me because I, I like just for people to have that opposite reaction um yeah. i know like rj you've ha- talked a lot in the past about your sort of emotional connection to that material and everything like did you feel the same way or were you just kind of bored by it no yeah i was like we get to see another ghost of the forest show this is amazing i mean especially knowing that trey is a constant tinkerer of music right like it's it's never going to be exactly the same and, and certainly since it's been a little while since we last saw it and i mean having having the strings i mean having it just i thought it was i thought it was awesome i thought it was really cool yeah i'd like to i'd like to talk about the strings just a little bit more because of course that stuff isn't part of the record wasn't part of the shows that we saw and don hart wrote all of these new scores uh and apparently was working on them right up till rehearsal um, which is, and they were beautiful as all his work seems to be They're, those collaborations, his, his scores of fish and Trey songs are terrific. And, uh, that alone made it worth seeing another ghost of the forest show though. Frankly, I never really thought I would see another ghost of the forest show. So I was glad to have that too. And Matt, to your point, I mean, about the, also just about the changing kind of uh, interpretation of music. Like I remember I, I felt the ghost of the forest stuff so intensely and it's, it was a long time ago now that those, that tour happened. I mean, relative to, you know, our lives at this point. And it, it hit me in a totally different way. Um, just, just in like the, you know, couple of years that have passed. I don't know. It's interesting how that, because it's not just like going back to listen to a 2018 fish show. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a capsule, you know what I mean? It's like its own mm-hmm. thing um, that I think changes over time for, for different people. So I think, I don't know what's going to happen over the next several shows of, of the Beacon Jams. Brad, do you have any, do you have any thoughts about things that you think might be coming from the Beacon Jams? No, not really. I, I mean, they've taken, they've taken page out of the equation. So we know a fish, the four man fish isn't going to happen. Um, <clears throat> and then fishmen, Last Friday, uh, you know, I, I don't know if he'll be back, but it, that w- I, that may have been his appearance. I mean, we've got another month, I guess, till the end of this month, November. Um, but but maybe Mike. But he, to me, that's not something Mike wants to do. Um, maybe he'll show up. I don't know. Um, but I would guess that there's going to be some horns at some point. I know that's kind of an easy, um, easy guess. But with all the strings and all of Tab, um, uh, that's that would be my next logical. Uh, conclusion, I guess. So uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to counter something you just said. I don't think there's going to be horns at any point. Um, God damn it. So one of the things that I've heard from different horn players that I know, 
uh, is there's a lot of talk in the kind of brass and woodwind community right now about people not playing together because you're essentially projecting your spit out into the air. It's like screaming through an instrument, basically. Exactly. And so the one thing I will say is that somebody, I guess it was Drew Hits um, the other night during the show, said something about like, yeah, we're all kind of not playing together right now because of that thing. And Don Hart actually chimed in and was like, yeah, that's sort of the the working assumption Hmm. right now. So Yeah, it makes um, a lot of sense. It seems like that's why they went with strings to augment the band instead of the horns because it's a much uh, safer option. It would be awesome. They could spread them out through the balcony. Like, <laughs> yeah. beacon, just room, you know what I mean? room sounds. Yeah. Trey clones yeah. in the balcony playing horns. <laughs> All right. Well, real quick, before we continue on to the show, um, Jonathan, can you just tell us about the song that you released this past week so that people uh, can know about it? Sure, sure. So I put out another another song it's a new song uh it's called deal you sue it's uh kind of a country-ish ballad um i would say i was leaning more towards towards like a, a graham parsons kind of vibe than maybe a pure country but uh i hooked up with a, an old friend of mine named ben taylor who uh, has played with a number of bands around uh over the years and and i've known him since grade school and sent it to him and he liked it, got the vibe I was headed for and put together some players and produced the track for me. And it sounds pretty great. And it is on my band camp. And we should link to that. I remember you sent me an acoustic version of it. Just you playing acoustic guitar. Was that like maybe April? Yeah, probably. That would be a long, long time ago. Takes time. We had a a little pause in between in the process while due to COVID. Yeah. And then finally he uh, was able to get a pedal steel player in and the guy laid some keyboards on there too and yeah, rounded it out real nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I said a long time ago because it's just like it's been a long time in the works and I know you spent a lot of time on it. So I want people to, to be able to check it out. Thank you. Um, and I want to tell you guys about one podcast episode that we think you'll enjoy. We'll put a link in the show notes, but the talk house podcast, which you all may be familiar with. Um, it's typically two musicians kind of interviewing each other. Um, and we're, we're friends with those guys and they have an episode coming out this week with Mike Gordon and Leo Kaki. And, uh, I think everyone who's listening to this would, will enjoy it. Um, I, I haven't heard the episode yet, but I've heard that they talk of course about their collaborations. Um, Bob Weir and Mike talks about Bob Weir and what he learned from Bob Weir about rock and roll. Apparently they talk about the mind opening books that book that Trey recommends to his bandmates and a bunch of other stuff too. So should be a good conversation and um, we'll put a link in the show notes um, and, and hope you all check out that show. All right, guys, let's talk about November 1995. I mentioned at the beginning that this is the, another collaboration with Under the Scales and Beyond the Pond. Next week, you'll hear Beyond the Pond talking about one of the jams that we will absolutely mention, and, and we'll, we'll double back to that. But November 95 was um, an incredible month, I guess, to me, first of all, because it you know starts right after the Halloween uh, cover of, of The Who. But um, Matt, what, what was going on with Fish at, at this time? musically from your perspective. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things and, and I highly recommend if you haven't listened to it already, go and listen to the episode of Under the Scales that came out last week with um, Brad Sands because Tom and Brad did a great job of talking about kind of what some of the the big tentpole um, you know, items were in Fish's world at that point. Um, but one of them, of course, is uh, Jerry Garcia having died um, and sort of possibly being an influx of people coming from Dead Tour onto fish tour. Um, although that may not have actually been, 
a really a driver for this tour because as Brad pointed out, the dates were already booked when Jerry died. But the other thing is uh, the um, Quadrophenia Halloween. Um, and that has historically been linked to the growth in size of the venues because Fish was now playing arenas all the time and they played this, you know, album by one of the greatest arena rock bands of all time and it may have kind of as other halloween albums have influenced their sound um this may have been the one that sort of helped them grow their sound to fill those rooms make them sound a little bit better and there's some elements that we'll talk about i think uh throughout the conversation here that are sort of marquees of 95 but that seemed to be kind of like the the driving force is like bigger rooms bigger rock and roll sound maybe a less little less nuance in the jamming and trying to um, kind of make the the sound and the room work together. And then also kind of having this opportunity to play in front of, you know, bigger crowds consistently than they had ever before. And um, I think, you know, spoiler alert, we'll, we'll probably find that they really seized the moment. And this, this <laughs> led to kind of their growth through the second half of the 90s. So Jonathan, you as a Grateful Dead fan and podcaster, I mean, to be fair, we're all Grateful Dead fans, but you are representative of, of of the Grateful Dead fan in this discussion. Um, so tell us, okay, so you saw shows this, this tour, but you also had seen the dead. And, um, I guess my only, my question for you is, do you think that the music was kind of affected by that, particularly because you saw some summer 95 shows and I know you're a big fan of summer 95. Do you see a difference between summer and fall? And do you think any of that had to do with either the passing of the torch figuratively or the people showing up or um, like, is that factor in or is it all just kind of a happenstance of history? You know, I, obviously I don't know. And I think maybe Brad talks a little bit more and has a little more knowledge about what might've been going on in the bands, you know, in the band room conversations and in their heads. But as a listener to me, this just feels like an extension to me. Summer 95 feels like an extension of fall 94 Fall 95 feels like an extension of summer 95. They were growing and threading this line that you can, I mean, to me, because I wasn't seeing every single show at the time and you couldn't, you know, like nowadays you couldn't hear every show the day after or whatever. So to me, it was kind of a constant rise from the year before and, and the shows I'd heard prior to that. The band was just continually getting better and, I didn't think that the mu musically it had anything to do with the shifting dynamics in the audience. I definitely saw shifting dynamics in the audience. Um, there were just more people. There were people that I'd never seen before, but fish was, had been growing their audience very organically for years. So I think you can only assign partial credit to grateful dead influx I mean, I didn't, I had tickets to Grateful Dead in September of 95. It didn't, I didn't go see Grateful Dead, but I didn't just suddenly go see Fish those weeks either. So <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I did have Fish tickets for the fall though, but it, they were in October and well, they were in November rather and they were in December, yeah. but other people, other people surely did. I, I just, I don't know. Uh, Brad, this is when we yeah. first started seeing fish and this was like the beginning. As far as I'm concerned, this is like, you know, this tour is what fish sounds like live, you know, cause it was the kind of the first thing I heard, but going back to these shows from November, any revelations for you or, or thoughts back to when you first started seeing and listening to the live stuff? No, you know, I obviously mentioned that 
it's it was our first show just a few days before you know and, and before the month of november started on 1028 and that was at the palace i mean just a huge arena 20,000 plus in that place um and it's funny cuz they were they were doing acoustic army then um even even though they were expanding so they were still kind of holding on to this you know um quieter sound i guess while also trying to figure out how to play these huge arenas um i mean they rocked the place when we saw them obviously at the palace and i think they continue to do that through november um you know i i think it all i, I it was a huge 95 um halloween i think was a huge turning point as all the halloweens were but um the, the month of november that we're going into i think directly plays off of that 10 31 95 show at the Rosemont. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the, um, it's interesting, the acoustic army, because that is a, it's such a contrast. And I remember getting the tapes, you know, we'd get the fall 95 tapes and like the tapers just like, you know, they'd crank up that one section and Mm -hmm. then, you know, try to like drown that, drown out the audience noise, but still hear the acoustic. It's just like, it seemed like a conscious fish thing to kind of fuck with with people. But especially because the, the amphitheater ones I think are a little bit, easier to as a taper i've never taped but it seems like it might be a little easier with outdoors than like when you're indoors and there's like you know suddenly it's like four acoustic guitars and then but there's still people going nuts um interesting i feel like i haven't really heard that many acoustic armies except for the ones that are on live fish because like on the tapes they didn't really show up no they don't and they're hard to hear and it's it's um one of the uh, i don't know something that i don't look i didn't look forward to you know with, with tapes back then um, with bad recordings, but it's funny the transfer from amphitheaters that you mentioned to these big arenas. Uh, they and and this is kind of a preview though. They change. I think they change their sound from that summer '95. Those sweet jams, um, those very exploratory kind of jazzy almost dissonance, and then they they are transitioning. And I think we'll hear it all throughout the the month of November from that sound to these the bigger rock, um, not so intricate as you mentioned um, jams in in November. I'm excited. So we decided that we would each pick a jam and because we can't go through like every show um, with respect for, you know, everyone's um, lives. Um, But we will um, we're going to post the playlist. I know that I said I would make a playlist for a previous episode. Then I did it like a week later. But we have the playlist. You can see it in the show notes. You can see what we all listened to. We all went through and listened to a bunch of jams. But we're going to we're going to highlight four four jams, one that each of us chose. But talk about some other uh, other highlights along the way. Um, I guess, you know, the, one of the things that Brad Sands talked about was just this, the break between Halloween and those Fox theater shows. And I remember getting the Fox theater tapes because it was fairly rare to get, I mean, I got six tapes at once, you know, it was pretty sweet from three shows, like a three night run was pretty rare. And to get all those tapes, you know, it, maybe I got them in December or something. It was just, it was such a beautiful like gift, you know, there's like three new shows in the mail. Um, and I don't, I, we don't have to go through each show, but I, I thought the, the playing in each of those three shows was really good. And, and Jonathan pointed out that you, you pointed out the Reba in the first, the first night of the Fox, but did you have any thoughts about how those three shows started Jonathan for this, this month? I mean, they played a great tour in October, you know, and then they worked their asses off all the, the whole time to get through this quadrophenia thing. And they took this well-deserved break and they come out and they just play really really well um and yeah the first thing i played when we were like all right november 95 let's get into it it was reba from the first show of the tour of the the month rather and 
it's it's great. It is exactly what you'd expect from this era. It is just really well played, dynamic, beautiful. And I think you get that throughout throughout this run. There are a few gems I think that we could all agree on, like gem vehicles from Fall ninety five. At least from this month. It seems like the mics and the tweezers and the you know, you enjoy myself and the Bowies really are like, it's kind of where everything is with one notable exception that everyone kind of knows about. But do you see a big difference between like the mics from the third night of Atlanta, 11, 11, and like the super psychedelic summer 95 jams? Like Jonathan, you kind of described it as an evolution from summer to fall. To me, they sound so much, um, they do, they do seem evolved, but they seem a little more like focused than like the Mud Island tweezer and the Jones beach, Bowie and some of those ones that got way out there, Matt. Do you do you see it like that, or or please tell me if you see it very differently? <laughs> no, I I definitely do. I think um, as I've said before, for me, from summer and fall '94 through fall '95, it seems like they kind of refined their approach a little bit each time. Like '94, they're just like digging and digging and trying whatever they can. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And it's all very weird and interesting. Summer 95, um, they're still taking that approach, but they've kind of learned a little bit more how to find the interesting bits um, without kind of seeming aimless at time. And so you have these, this something like the Mud Island Tweezer, which is very long, but it's very interesting the entire time. And it also is very musical the entire time. You don't get into a lot of like weird spaces where you could call it kind of like a you know anti-musical or anything like that i think by fall 95 you know i don't know how, how much of this was them going back and saying okay we might have pushed the envelope a little bit too far with all those like 40 minute jams versus adapting to the rooms which i think is personally probably a bigger influence on the sound and what happened because by this point they have played arenas enough, especially small arenas in 94, to understand what the what that experience is going to be like and maybe what some of the pitfalls are going to be. And so they're kind of reacting to like, you know, maybe doing playing things where we're all playing these really crazy different polyrhythmic parts doesn't sound good in the room to the audience, but also to the band. Because you got to, you, you were very correct a second ago when you talked about amphitheaters versus arenas. Like, it's not just the muddiness of the room that affects the audience. There's also this slapback that happens from the sound hitting the back wall of the arena and coming back to the band. And I think they really learned how to play that. They have to put more space between the notes which playing the Who album really um, gave them great experience doing that because it's this big, cordy, chunky, riffy rock. But then also, you know, people talk about the um, the percussion rig that Trey had as, as like this way for him to get out of his own way and sort of give space to Paige in particular to kind of take the lead and, and um, you know, drive the jam forward a little bit more. I actually hear it and it, I didn't have this revelation until we listened to so much of this month. I think a lot of it is him kind of trying to reinforce the downbeat a lot of times and kind of like give them more rhythmic coherence and almost play the room a little bit to kind of, you know, like not have them drifting away from the rhythm at all or like, you know, fish, fish can be very busy at times, but to just like get in there and reinforce this like boom, 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 and kind of get the audience and the band all in one place and, and, and work the room a little bit better. 
Jonathan, you you saw both summer and fall shows. Do you do you see do you feel like a big difference going back to them? Like this eleven eleven mics seems to be the first. Like I mean, there's a lot of jamming in that those three shows, but that to me was like the first one that got super out there. I mean, it, it's different, but every every show, every tour is different. So I I don't I kind of bristle when you say more focused because I think they are <laughs> there nothing they're doing in these several years and this time is without focus and without True. utmost focus. Fair. Um and I think that they are you know but but I, I think Matt may be onto something. I, I actually tend to agree that they are driving for different things, uh playing off the room feeling that slap back. I think that's a very important point. Um, so, you know, you're going to get different sounds doing that and you're going to wander into different corners. Um, one of the things that Fish, once they really started improvising, has, you know, collectively on stage, has really done very well is not repeat itself. And so that this is just more of... We're continuing to jam. We're we're getting weird, but we're not doing it the way we did last time because that's not who they are. That's 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 a good, really good point. And I, I was actually just—you guys know—I do interviews for this other podcast, Past, Present, Future Live, and um, I almost, <laughs> I almost feel like it's it was uh, Fish taught me this, but I feel like now I realize that this is actually most musicians because I've had a lot of people on that uh, show that I've talked to about their career, and as you get further along you hear people talk about how they don't want to go backwards and like if you grow up as a music fan like listening to classic rock and you know um music that you just hear repetitively you sort of assume that there's like that bands just like kind of play all their songs all the time and just like play the same songs all the time you know but once you like start listening to musicians talk about it there's always with with most really good musicians i think there's like this always pushing forward. Right. And I feel like I learned that from fish and I'm sh- I'm sure the dead was the same way. I know miles Davis, that was like one of his main things, but it's interesting that you frame it that way, Jonathan. Cause I think that's, I'm sure that's what they were thinking, right? They're continuing to challenge themselves and continuing to push themselves forward, which I think is notable, you know? So I feel like there's an arc to this tour. I feel like the first few shows, four or five shows are really good. And then there's like a little bit of a dip and then it kind of comes back toward the end. And I'm curious if you guys think that, but I feel like this 11, 12 show after they finished the three nights at Atlanta, they go to Gainesville and there were just some, I felt really good kind of more, um, I don't know. They just maybe a little bit more patient jams, the, the Reba certainly and the tweezer in this show, I thought were just really pretty, pretty stunning. Um, it felt like they were kind of even though they came out of the gate hot in Atlanta, I think they started to kind of settle down a little bit. Um, I don't know if you guys feel that way, but I feel like this show kind of was uh, this show and the next show were sort of like these kind of like they were they were reaching peak kind of like patience. Um, and this tweezer, I think, is a good example of that. Yeah, I, I feel a little bit differently than you. I think that the Fox shows were just OK. Um, mm. Now, that's just OK by fall 95 standards, which means that they're freaking awesome. But compared to everything else uh, or a lot of what, what we'll hear from this month, um, I you know, they took a week off and I think they had to kind of reconnect. The other thing is it doesn't get talked about enough. The irony of them, you know, playing this Halloween, which was supposedly the big christening into Arena Rock. And then they go and play three uh, three nights at the theaters. <laughs> as the next shows so they're like they're swinging big in a small 
small room and um, there's great stuff. The Reba from the first night is awesome. Um, the hood from the second night is, is really, really great. I think this was one of their last opportunities to really play to a smaller room and take advantage of like, you know, like in a Bowie or hood jam dropping to like absolutely near silence and then building it up from there, which once they're full time in arenas, they don't do quite as much. Like the, the bottom of that dynamic growth is a little bit higher because they still have like, you know, anywhere from seven to 20,000 people in front of them. So it doesn't play quite as well, but I think you're right. I mean, and the other thing, I mean, just to, to look at the tour, which is actually kind of crazy to think about today, they spent almost a week in Florida. Yeah. Yeah, so weird. So crazy. No, I was going to say, but, and we have to remember, we're we're kind of isolating November. They were playing in September through October, you know, and then they play December as well, obviously. So they've been playing for a while. This is um, our focus, but, you know, the the arc that you were talking about, RJ, is actually longer, right? Um, Yeah. The fall is is an incredible fall. We don't see them anymore. Um, And this is really... Yeah, obviously, they, uh, the end of the 90s, they toured a lot as well. But we got to remember the beginning of the 90s is when they were playing so many shows, hundreds of shows. So they're used to this long, long arcs of, of tours. Um, but and I wanted to mention about the the Fox, as we'll be talking about YEM later. Um, I don't call it YEM. YEM later. Um, this The second night of the Fox was uh, the first of, I think, about five YEMs out of these 15 or so shows in November. Um, and it contained that crossroads, which you highlight in the, in the playlist, RJ, um, the intro and outro of the crossroads within the middle of that YEM. Um, they do that a lot throughout the month of November and probably the other ones, uh, but that's kind of the focus of YEM is these middle sections where they play another song or at least quote one. Um, so that's the highlight of those three shows. I think for me, Hey, why don't we take a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors and we'll be right back. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. They go from the Fox, which is about 5,000 cap, to the what is called the O-Dome, um, the, the O'Connell Center at, uh, in Gainesville, which is just funny to me because I'm a child, um, which is 10,000. <laughs> so they're so they're. They're doubling the size of the room in, in, you know, one night, basically, with without any, like, time off. They're, like, going to a double. I mean, I, I just feel like that doesn't happen with bands very frequently. May, maybe for some that are in transition, but to go from a 4,000 or 5,000 seat theater into a 10,000 seat arena seems like a big shift. Although I guess they had been doing that in October as well. Yeah. And, and for the past couple of years before that, I mean, they were, you know, big room, little room, it, and it was so much of it was regional, but you know, now that's like more consistently edging up towards the, uh, the big rooms. And this tweezer, I think is just, I mentioned the kind of patience, but there's just, a, there's a, there's a bliss and a kind of, a I don't know. I still don't really know what hose means in, in the context of fish, but <laughs> <laughs> there's some blissful, there's some blissful guitar playing. I need to, I need to study it more, but there's some blissful, uh, jamming in this tweezer. I, I really enjoy it. 
I will I'll say about your, this tweezer. Um, yeah, I, I think it's nice and stretchy. Um, I wouldn't call it laid back, but it's not really propulsive. It just kind of goes, and there's this, there is a really pretty segment in the in the middle. It's kind of kind of like a Beatles-ish kind of progression, um, if the Beatles jammed, I guess. And there's the part right near the end. It starts to step up and like they could have gone into walk away but they they back off of that and um yeah it, but it, yeah it's a nice tweezer i think the two things about 95 tweezers and particularly fall 95 tweezers as opposed to every other era of the the band playing this song um it's much more driving rock song than a funk song i mean if you you know it started out as this funk groove um they build it up towards this and then you know a year later they'll be back towards more of the rhythmic funky thing so much of that is caused by the way that fish plays the drum beat um in 95 he has this driving uh, rhythm, you know, four on the floor kind of rhythm on the ride um, that he's just sort of propelling things forward and keeping the groove really, really tight. Part of that may be that room sound thing just to try and tighten things up and make it a little bit easier for the band to hear and kind of get into. Um, and then Dre's playing as well, particularly when they start the jams out, it's more riff rock than than like a funk thing where he would play sort of a lot of like nine chords and stuff like that. Um, and you don't hear it before or after. It's just it kind of a relic of this era, but obviously it, it created so many great tweezers like this one. Um, and another great example that we've talked about in the past is the one from a month later in New Haven, where it's just like a driving rock song. Um, but it's, it's great. And these 95 tweezers are just kind of magical. So there's the next show, which is the most popular show of this um, month, Jonathan, there is a, um, there's almost a, I feel like this doesn't happen that much with fish, but probably more than I, than I am willing to acknowledge where it just feels like it's just going into this space that's completely unplanned, completely organic, but like completely innovative. Um, And that happens in this show, but what, Let's talk about the 14th quickly. And and I will say before you do that, Beyond the Pond will be talking about this um, segment that Jonathan will be talking about, um, I'm sure. Uh, But they'll be doing that next week for their episode. But Jonathan, what what makes this show so amazing? Well, I mean, I don't even have the whole set list in front of me. I've listened to the show a million times and I don't remember the set list beyond like really this, the stash, Manteca stash, Dogface Boy block which of course is heavily dissected it's an official release and all that but i get chills like every time when you get to that heavily corded bit and early in the the stash jam and it just gets heavier and darker and i can hear it in my brain yeah, right now yeah. i've listened to it yeah, so many too. times <laughs> i've you know i made that this hour-long stash mix uh, years ago and it features that prominently this bit where i can't I can hear it. It's so great. Um, it's it is one of my top twenty favorite bits of fish music. It, it's just fucking awesome. Well, so okay, thank you for that because this this only happens actually a couple times in Fall '95, in my opinion. There's also the the, the segment from Live Fish One, which is the twelve fourteen show with the Haley's and ICU Slave. Like I feel like that's a similar thing where it's just like they're in this space that's just like unplanned but completely original and and it feels like it feels like you're part of a ride that like they didn't even really know they were on until they were playing it which i I think in this point that got more common sort of later on as they as they became more comfortable just 
exploring these these spaces but this does feel like a very special um kind of moment of this tour matt do you do you feel similarly to jonathan is this like a is this a is this a special one for you Oh, totally. Probably maybe my favorite jam or segment of into all of Fall 95, um, other than some parts of Binghamton. Um, it's amazing. Uh, you can watch the, the, this, there's video of it from when Live Fish was still selling videos, um, a little over a decade ago that, uh, has, you know, made its way onto YouTube. So you can check it out. Um, visually it's so cool to watch because there's a lot going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I actually would almost call this like the, I think there's a little bit of an, an analog to like, um, uh, the Providence Bowie and like, this is like the stash version of the Providence Bowie where it has all these different sections. It's very scary at times. It goes to lots of different places and, and when they finish it, it just feels triumphant. Like the band was like kind of unexpectedly, you know, went to these places, uh, as you said. So it's, I'm sure most people have probably heard that, but if you haven't, um, especially before our friends, Brian and Dave talk about it next week, go, go ahead and consume this jam over and over again, because it's, it's pretty amazing. Also, uh, you know, an, an, a nice example of something they did a lot on this tour, which is land from some serious, serious shit into Dogface Boy. Yeah, yeah, and I was I was going to say that Brad, like, there's like with so many of these jams that are that we remember, they're like there's just something you know kind of not not necessarily silly but just something very like fishy in the middle that's like of course they play Dogface boy in the middle of this like intense jam it's like you know the lassie stuff in the providence bowie or whatever they they can't just like do a they can't do a psychedelic scary thing in this era without like just some some goofing around yeah you know it reminds me of um <clears throat> my second show was a 12 8 95 show in cleveland um and they and they played a tweezer kong and I was like, this is this is just silly shit, you know, so crazy and so weird. But at the same time, in the moment, um, and even with this stash, um, after the moment, it's still pretty intense and still takes you to some, can take you to some crazy places, especially depending on where you are <laughs> mentally, right? Um, so this, I also got to mention, the second set ends with the YEM immigrant song jam back into YEM. Um just to highlight the month of, of YEMs here um, that, that goes on. And, and again, I'm sure everybody's heard it. This is a well-listened-to live fish release for me, at least. Well, but I don't know that everyone, I think like everyone listens to that segment, but but I don't know, maybe people listen, like you said, Jonathan, I don't really remember the whole set list. I've listened to it a ton, but it's just, it's so focused on that one jam segment that the other parts might get overlooked. I, I, I would know. say, though, kind of to contradict my own self and, and maybe a little bit you is that <laughs> it's a good radio. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the, uh, the, yeah, I actually, I think I'm, I'm, I'm really contradicting you is that, uh, <laughs> that the jamming that they do in this is they're doing this all through this entire tour. But this one is one of those that crystallizes into something that is like just perfect. It is the target but they're, they're, there's a lot of out there jamming on these shows. And we're going to get into some more of it. Okay, so I have a theory because I think Brad Sands mentioned that this was like, at least based on his memory, this 1114 show was not hugely, it wasn't, I don't think it was a full uh, arena. 
And you look at the rooting and like you look at like going from Gainesville to Orlando and then to Tampa for the next night. It's a little bit of a triangle. Like I I could because you if you leave and this is getting into, you know, some serious conspiracy theory stuff. But it's sort of like, you know, the Vegas show from 98. I mean, the 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 show after the Vegas show 98, they got kind of passed over because they, people just went on to the next stop and you could see leaving Gainesville going down 75 to Tampa, go to the beach, you know, and miss this kind of Orlando show, which is a, a little bit out of the way Tuesday night. And, um, I don't know. I do think there's some credence to this like off night thing. There could be, but I'm doing, you know, fish tour in Florida in 95. I'm going to do all three shows. <laughs> I mean, that's just, but what if you want to get, wacky. what if you want to get to the beach in November, man? Far more likely to have skipped Florida altogether, to be honest. That's a good call right there. Why wouldn't you want to go to Disney World instead? I mean, going to <laughs> Disney World in the middle of fish tour sounds like a lot of fun. And 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 we're, we're to, and though though Florida is quite large, we're still talking about one state. I mean, this is there's a big difference between that and like skipping Utah to get from Vegas to Denver, which I could certainly see some people doing even today. Fair. Okay. Fine. Let's put that. And there was a day off. They're thirteenth. They could go to the beach on the thirteenth. Right, I'm <laughs> I'm creating conspiracies that we're then disputing, right, disproving immediately, which is always <laughs> fun. All right, so they go on to Tampa and and West Palm Beach, both okay shows. The, the West Palm Beach show I think is notable because there's uh, there's like. And Brad Sands talked about this a little bit. There's like the Butch trucks sit in on one song and then Jimmy Buffett on another song. And apparently they were trying to visit both of them and different. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy, but um, I, I know we all hold Jimmy Buffett in, in very high regard um, as, a, <laughs> as an artist, a songwriter and a performer, especially Matt. I, I know you love Jimmy Buffett and Jonathan, you do too. You guys have been on tour with him, right? Yeah, uh, fins to the left or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> you should see the look Jonathan's giving me right now. Parrot. They're both parrot faces, aren't they? I, I, I will deny going to any Jimmy Buffett concerts, but I will stop right there. The Butch, the Butch Trucks sit-in is like very awkward because he's playing a song that he doesn't know, he's never heard, and as Brad Sands pointed out in the end of the scale thing, he's basically just playing One Way Out, and Fish is trying to adapt Possum to be that. They escaped Florida after a, after that encore. <laughs> I feel like they just jumped in the bus and were like, we're out of here. And they end up in, in Charleston, North Charleston, where they still play shows today, um, which is... This was their first show at this uh, North Charleston Coliseum, and they most recently played there in December of 2019. Have you guys has a, have you guys seen a show there at that arena? Yeah, I haven't either. But it seems like a pretty good place for for fish. And this was the, their first stop. I know Brad has some particular thoughts about this show, but um, this seems like you know a couple of days off and kind of getting on the road again, um, kind of refresh them a little bit because this is a it's a pretty solid show. Yeah, I love it. I, number one, I love. Charleston, the city. I think it's a gem uh, in the southeast or whatever, and, and it's just a wonderful place to be. Um, we each kind of picked a jam to focus on, and I've been talking about the YEMs, obviously, but this is the one that I, I focused on the most. I thought it was great. Um, I've listened to it a few times after listening to it, you know, all these shows once. Um, it's It comes out of a really, I think, fun first set. It has has a lot of things that would draw my eye. Um, you know, on a on a J card, that first set and a second set with the bag opener, I think is great. Free is really new at this point. Uh, just came, you know, they just started playing it uh, in spring uh, of '95. So um, again, a, a good 
both first and second sets are good. Um, but this YEM is 30 minutes, I think. Well, 25 minutes if you take out the unnecessary vocal jam at the end. But um, <laughs> the, the 25 minutes, 25 minute jam is uh, they go in and out of Brick House. They tease it a bunch. They quote it a bunch. Uh, they don't label it on Fish. Uh, on .NET or Livefish, I don't think, uh, but Brickhouse is in there, and they jam it, um, and Trey sings the vocals. But this is, I think, one of the incredible YEMs of, of the five that are played this month. I think they're all really well played. You know, it's a very composed song, and I think maybe that's why um, it doesn't get a lot of attention. I'm not saying it should get a lot of attention, but it's a, an awesome, when well played, it's 15, 20, 25 minutes of a really fun danceable song um and this i I think this version really highlights you know i've got some notes but um i won't belabor the point And besides the unnecessary vocal jam, do you do you also love this version? God damn it! I am gonna quit this fucking <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm I'm also on team vocal jam. Vocal so. jam right. is oh, part nice. of you enjoy two, myself. Two. Yes, it is part of you enjoy myself. I'm pretty sure the band will stand up against you too. So you can say it's two two, but they're not yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but oh, I didn't know. But that. without them, no. What about sneaking Sally? I mean, does that is that part of sneaking Sally? Uh, technically no because they didn't write it but it is part of their arrangement <laughs> okay all right um <laughs> you enjoy myself is vocal jam is very cool but more importantly the brick house move is super slick and graceful uh a lot like the crossroads the immigrant song the other things that there's that brad has already kindly pointed out to us but i i think it's rad um i think that if you want to deep dive into you enjoy myself you owe it to yourself to go to the uh, fish.net review archive and pull up charlie dirksen's you enjoy myself reviews and follow along because he makes a lot of salient points uh about how they are different even though it is as as brad correctly notes you know very composed song um you know they 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 definitely you know emphasize different 
portions of it. Mike's solo gets a little mm. pretty melodic in this one. You know, Nirvana bit gets a little uh, weirder in this particular one. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a good one. I'll also point this this one is 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 exciting. There's no real tray. You know, they each have their own little sections. Each each band member usually starts with um, Page or Trey, but Trey doesn't take one necessarily. Maybe the brick house portion, you could say he he drives, but um at the end fish i'm assuming trey's on the on the mini kit um because it sounds like there's three people drumming at the end of this jam and it's really awesome it's really fun to listen to uh it sounds it's just definitely two of those people that's what i'm saying right exactly maybe he might be all three but i think trey might be one of them probably is one of them so um it's a great version matt is this was this the the last golden age for you enjoy myself fall 95 I don't think it's the last golden age for uh, for Yem because um, I think they continued to play the shit out of it for a long time after that, up to and including in 2.0. Um, but I do think that 95 is one of the only eras when you do see things happen that you wouldn't otherwise see in other places. So like when I was, you know, to, to your guys' point a, a second ago, I think we're mostly in agreement, like as opposed to like something like tweezer where it's like, you know, three minutes of composed and then who the hell knows what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, most of the time, if they play you enjoy myself, you know, what's going to happen. It's there's variations. Maybe the Nirvana is a little longer. Maybe Trey's solo is more or less fiery, but it's like, it's, it's very consistent in length um, around 23 minutes because they tend to do kind of the same things each time. But here comes 95. We listen to this November 18th version and it gets to, you know, there's some cool things throughout, like they do some bird whistling in the Nirvana section and, and there's some neat things that happen throughout. But then like you get to the natural drum and bass ending of the song about, you know, 16, 17 minutes in. And then it's like, OK, they're going to do that and then they're going to do the vocal jam. And Mike sounds like he's winding up to, you know finish his part and go into the vocal jam, but here comes Trey on the percussion kit and they managed to juice another like 13 minutes out of the jam because of that. Um, and you see that in these fall 95 yams, you know, the most famous version being Albany, um, where it's like you, you, this the to- thing could totally be over. And then it's like, here comes another 10 minute section of like drum madness and stuff before they have to go back into the drum and bass section to end it. So, and I think that's, this is the last time or maybe one of the only times when you see things like that happening on a pretty regular basis. Matt pointed out the bird whistling. It is, this is the second time we'll mention the Providence Bowie in this uh, episode. Drink. Yep. That, that's what I was referring to when I mentioned the weirdness in the Nirvana section. Right, right. Yeah. Speaking of drink, um, we are going to take a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors, and we're going to come back after that and break down the rest of these shows. We are back. We are still here. It's still 2020, as far as we know. Um, but we're going back to 95, and we are jumping back in at the 11:19 show, um, which Charlotte. I, I think there's another really, really good tweezer here. Um, the, the tweezers have been just phenomenal this tour. 
theme 2001 curtain tweezer billy breathes come on and and life on mars which i just like to take this moment to talk about how often they played life on mars on this tour which yeah. is more than more than zero and um i really really wish they'd played it for one of the shows that i saw or maybe one of the shows that I will see one day again in the future when we have shows, please. I've never seen it. Have you seen it, Jonathan? No. And I, it's like the only song that I actively, willfully chased at this point. Kind of amazing how much they played it in 95 and 96. And, and then there's like once a few other times. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Gr- it's great, cool. great cover. Um, well, I do think this tweezer is totally different from the one we talked about from Gainesville in that it's 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 much more I guess Jonathan like you 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 said that other one wasn't kind of like propulsive this one is. Yeah, which is which is cool. You hear a lot of different kind of jamming. And I think that's I think that's something that's different from 94 Fish, right? They're, in 95 like they had the ability to diversify in these jams in in a way that I think was probably started in summer 95, but you didn't really hear that in in fall 94. You you heard the tweezers were very like the good ones were very good tweezers, but they were all kind of similar. This just started to diversify so much jam wise. I wouldn't call it repulsive, but yeah, I get it. Um, but <laughs> the mule, I thought the mule stuck out too. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of some of the mule, but um, I thought it was a little bit different. Uh, and this, this show generally deserves a listen. All right. So they, Winston Salem, once they get there, then shit starts starts popping off, as the as the kids say. Um, there's a there's a good I mean, this the first set. There's some acoustic stuff in the first set. And Jonathan, I don't think they were doing that on every like why why were they playing like Long Journey Home and I'm Blue Lonesome in the middle of the first set? But they didn't really do that in other places, I guess, because they were just feeling it in in North Carolina. Yeah, they're just feeling it, I think, because, uh, you know, it comes back. They do it again uh, a few shows later. Um, they, those songs were very much in the mix. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see that pairing, actually, uh, later in the tour. It's It seems like at this point they were treating the bluegrass thing almost like uh, another flavor of the acapella thing, where it's like something, or, or even by this point, the Fishman thing, where it's like a trick that they do that they can put into shows. They don't do it every time. It's a little unexpected, but they always have it in their back pocket, as opposed to like 94 when they were doing it all the time, or like in the earlier 90s, they were doing you know acapella tunes almost every night. Um, personally, I'm all for an alternate history um, or alternate reality or dimension order where they still do that like you know maybe like three or four times a tour um yes do do the bluegrass thing um yeah but because they did it you know they did it on halloween they did it here they they did it at shoreline uh to, as a tribute to jerry at the beginning of the tour so it, was just, it pops up you know sporadically but matt there is this this segment in the uh second set which i believe is what you chose um here to focus on a, a pretty wild i don't know first 30 40 minutes of the set yeah, this is my my selection for the jam to to talk about is very, being re- very representative of what was going on here. It's simple in the Bowie, and they uh, wind up playing a little bit of "Take Me to the River" uh, and then back into Bowie. And there's so many things going on here. Um, we should probably listen to a little bit of it just to get a, a flavor.
So, I mean, just kind of rapid fire, some things to unpack here as I was doing some detailed listening on this. Um, and, and, you know, we played a little segment of it, but you should really check out this entire sequence because there's some cool stuff going on. But um, in the simple, you know, the tray gets to the percussion rig instantly in this simple jam and they wind up having this cool little jam um you know once again i feel like this is one of the areas where like he's trying to reinforce the rhythm and kind of get things rocking inside of this um big arena um the thing about the you know we talked about how this is kind of a way to tighten up the sound in the room um but it's also like at times i think there's a it's a signal from trey um to the band to do something so like when we get to the end of when he finishes wanting to play take me to the river which is basically just like one verse and chorus he kind of does a couple quick hits on the percussion rig and the band very quickly pivots back into bowie so i wonder if there was some sort of unspoken tricks or signals to to each other that he was like hey if i do this like that that means like you know go back to where we came from or something like that This is one of the only eras when I think you could see a smooth segue, um, a complete segue. The uh, not just the the alligator, as my um, friend Jimmy likes to call it, but the dash in the alligator. Uh, true segue into Bowie. Um, I mean, like, how do you jam into that song, right? Well, this is a great example of it. Like he the 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 hi hat intro starts. It kind of. Um, gets into some spookiness uh, and Paige is, is doing some weird things. Um, so this that's very, very cool and something to listen for. Um, in 95, if, if they went to a weird or kind of ambient space, um, they there was still some sort of driving rhythmic aspect to it, whether it was Trey kind of still playing on the percussion as with the, the Orlando stash, or um, Paige would still be playing some staccato uh, you know, triads or something like that. Um, you know, there was something in, in a matter of like a year or two later, they would learn to remove all of that and have it just be a wall of ambient sound, which is really cool, but you don't have that in 95. Um, you know, in case in point here, you've got five minutes of Bowie intro of, with weird stuff going on, but it still has like drive, you know, percussive elements, uh, scattered throughout, but then like Bowie, in 95, I think my overall takeaway is that like it relies a lot less on the big build from this pianissimo up to a fortissimo, which kind of, you know, gives it this really amazing trajectory. What to they, a what now? Fortissimo. Fortissimo. Like super, super loud. Um, uh, I'm using music terms, man. Uh, you know. <laughs> I thought like you Shit. Um, so. The- Brad's asleep. Brad. <laughs> Brad, wake up. He's talking. Sorry, um, Sorry keep going, man. I, I, so, uh, you know, the, the 
I mentioned this earlier. It's like, you know, I wonder if like playing in the arenas, they felt like they couldn't drop the bottom out quite as much and go to a quieter sound to build it back up um, because they don't do it as much here. And the Bowie's in 95 are more about like balls to the wall for during the jamming and how much they can kind of exceed your expectations about how far they can take that. So like this is a perfect example because like you don't even see the peak of the jam coming because they're going so hard so hard and somehow telepathically trey decides to go to the high e and mike goes to the a minor uh b minor c progression that ends the song at the same time i listened to it like five times this afternoon and i couldn't even having heard it just a minute before i couldn't guess where that was going to happen um because they're just going forward and forward and forward and forward so it's funny that you said all of that about the dynamics because i i did you read my note because I, I find it interesting, you know, I listened to this this segment and yeah, I completely agree that Minikit gives us a simple, um, you know, the jam and simple is all driven when Trey goes to the Minikit. And, uh, and the Bowie intro is really long and groovy. But this whole, the simple jam into the Bowie with the long intro into the Take Me to the River, to me, that is all about the dynamics, the quiet to the loud to the back and forth. They ping pong a good bit, but then, yeah, then they blow in out of Take Me to the River, back into Bowie, and then it's just hot, high tension right up to the wire and right up to the end, and it's it's really sick. It's a really, really great passage of music. Matt, I appreciate your that detailed kind of breakdown because that's an intense, like, segment of music, um, and I think the the... To, to listen to the whole thing as one passage is like, it's a commitment. And I think that's, it's good to like put that whole thing together. You know, um, I, I have a question though. Why, why is it take me to the river, but, but not brick house a few nights earlier? Like I know that fish.net has their own methodology for this, but this was like you said, Matt, wasn't it a, a, a verse in a court? <laughs> Don't go there. Don't go there. Yeah, they didn't mention they didn't label Brickhouse. It is labeled on on .net. It's a, it's it's noted as a, as a jam, there's a Brickhouse jam. In but why them. isn't it yes. into Brickhouse? I think the difference is that like they never completely switch over as an entire band to to playing Brickhouse. Like it's basically just like Trey playing the Brickhouse guitar part and singing the lyrics over a Yem jam. Um, this is I this is kind of the same. Okay. This is kind of the but, same thing as the like the did they play party time thing? It's like yeah, Trey, it, yeah. it sounds a little similar in Trey singing party time. That doesn't make it party time because Fishman's <laughs> not actually playing the drum beat to party time. I think, Here, I think Brad and I, Brad and I, because we don't really know much about music, actually, right. we're like he said party time. I mean, what, what else do you want him to do? You know, <laughs> party time. Imagine if they stayed in the like stayed in E minor, the spooky Bowie key, and Trey was just on top of that, going like take me to the river that would be a more of a tease where it's here like they actually as a band pivot to playing the song for for a little while i hate when you bring up logical things that make sense <laughs> pisses me off yeah but my counter argument to that is that they tease they tease the the music the trey plays the little riff of brick house during that and then maybe two or three minutes later the whole band is playing it, including the bass line at least, and then Trey starts singing it. So there's even like an intro to it in that. So that would be my argument, and that's what I would stamp and then send to .NET. And please please make a donation to the Mockingbird Foundation. Jonathan, the next night they go to Landover, Maryland, the the USA Arena, which was the CAP Center, the right? CAP Center. 
Cap Center. Cap Center. U.S. Air Arena is what people from other towns call that place. It's the Cap Center. <laughs> Ooh. Cap Center. They go to the Cap Center, which which Brad Sands again talked about. And I know the Dead played a lot of shows there, and that's sort of a, 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 a hallowed place for jam bands. But Jonathan, this is the first show of this tour that you saw when you got there were there people talking about this winston-salem show from the night before was there like a was it feeling like the tour was picking up steam of some kind or what what do you remember going into that show expecting well i checked my diary and no no sweet i, I don't keep a diary i i honestly i i, <laughs> I don't thought we just stumbled upon a huge some... <laughs> huge breakthrough like jonathan has a diary I had some friends who were doing the shows, and so, yeah, you know, people were like, oh, yeah, they did this and this, and I was excited to be there, and, you know, I was with my girlfriend and my my buddy Joel, and we had seats on Paige's side, on the side, but so, all like, the very first row on the side, which was basically uh, one step up on a riser on the floor, halfway back the floor, which was reserve seats and it was rad we had all this dancing room it was a fun ass show uh, so i don't i i i'm sure some people were like all a buzz about what had been going on in the recent shows and and we got a little bit of that but forgot all about it the show was the show to me was really good the first set is really solid and then they come out for the second set and completely completely botch rift um and just abandon it and go into free. And it's a, like a 30 some minute free. And it's amazing. Sick. It's sick. Amazing. And, and it I, was just a great, just fun thing. And yeah, I, the free, the free is the, is the noteworthy point of this show. I will say that back to .NET, the, the, the jam chart entry for the antelope, which is an early first set antelope says the jam wastes no time dicking around, but gets right into the intensive and dissonant playing. So, um, you know, there's no dicking around in the antelope, but there wasn't a lot of dicking around in general in 95. They just, they got straight to the point, but that 30 minute free is, is certainly, and then you get another, you enjoy myself in the second set. Cause it's like, everyone gets a, you enjoy myself on this tour, which is amazing. Yeah, um, and, and we got a slow poor heart. Which I feel part. like is worth mentioning. Do you guys think that anyone got yelled at for the tour for the rooting of this when they went from outside of DC up to Pittsburgh and then back down to Hampton after just having come from Winston Salem? It just feels like a little bit of a you're like, what the fuck? Why are we going all the way back well, up to Pittsburgh and then all I'm the way sure back? I'm sure Brad down? got yelled at. That's what happens, right? I I, yeah, it, right? it had <laughs> in general. I could tell you it had everything to do with the nights of the week and the and ticket sales and Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving was after Cap Center. And so they went to Pennsylvania. They, uh, I know Brad talked about it. You know, they had Thanksgiving uh, up there. Excuses, and, excuses. Uh, I think it was Pennsylvania or New York. I don't know where the hell they had Thanksgiving. It's not my, not my meal. Probably um, Jersey. Yeah. And then they, but then they played Pittsburgh on Friday. And I, for years, I was like, man, I should have gone to Pittsburgh. I should have gone to Pittsburgh. I don't, don't even have a real reason why, uh, but... You know, then we went to Hampton the next night. So I think if you're fish in 95, you don't really get to have whatever tour routing you want. Right. Um, you know, Oasis and REM and bands like that get to, at this point, pick where, where they're going to play and when. Um, fish is trying to wedge stuff in. They still are not that well known. And they've got to work around, um, you know, college sports schedules, NHL, NBA, all that kind of stuff. So, you know. Beggars can't be choosers, right? I guess not. I guess not. All right. Well, anyways, Brad, I'm sorry that you did that. Um, but then they go back to Hampton. 
and and Jonathan, this is your this is your pick. You were at this show as well. You made the you made the smart decision to avoid the horrible routing and and went went straight to Hampton. So this show was rad. It was nice to be back at the Hampton Coliseum. I'd seen a few other shows there, um, and so I was excited to see Fish's first show there. And they came out and opened with Poor Heart, which was fun. And having just seen the slow Poor Heart, we were surprised to see the fast Poor Heart. Um, and the first set's really good. Uh, it doesn't, you know, go deep necessarily. Uh, but then second set, they just, they come out blazing with this a timber that is perfect and excellent and everything you want from a timber hoe. Uh, and it, uh, as it ends, they just go into this weird, as usual, Kung, and then Mike's song. And so to me, you know, you mentioned this at the beginning, RJ, that, you know, one of the, the banner jam vehicles or what have you of this tour is, is, is Mike's song. And this is one of those. This is, this is just great. So it's perfectly excellent Mike song, uh, and except that they they have a rotation jam in it. So at one point, you know, Trey goes to the mini kit and then he wanders over to to the drum kit. Fish gets up, walks over and takes Mike's bass from him. Mike goes to the guitar and then they rotate again with Mike, uh, with, uh, with Fish going over to the guitar. And uh, that's always a trip because Fish is not a guitar player. Um, and then he fish ends up it's basically removing fishman around the stage he ends up on piano and then everybody ends up on piano and they had been doing keyboard cavalry on this tour uh, and so a lot of people wrote it down as keyboard cavalry because it unless you had seen it you didn't know that keyboard cavalry what it was you just knew that it meant everybody was playing piano um but here they did not play keyboard gallery. They improvised and frankly is weirder and much better for it for the rest of us. Um, (laughs) They, they just push themselves just so far out there. It sounds a little like chaos. And then they just round the corner and everybody goes back to their place and they finish Mike's song and completely slay the finish on Mike's song. It is uh, outstanding.
then we get that um, that bluegrass section again. We get My Long Journey Home, which at the time I would always write down as $2 bill because I love that song. And I'm blue, I'm lonesome. Uh, just, God, I, I love 95 Fish. And then they did the, we'll ha- we have to mention the poor heart thing. They closed set two with the slow poor heart and they played the uh, the weird, even slower poor heart or reprise or whatever you want to call it uh, to open the encore for a minute. And well, God, Fish is a weird ass band. <laughs> First of 21 Hampton Coliseum shows to date. Hopefully, this I'm was sure the very first, more. but this is the first, and it's I didn't know man, that. Nice. what what a storied venue. I mean, there was that huge, huge dump they took on in '04, but besides that, it's been such a beautiful <laughs> venue for fish. Um, Matt, do you have any any comments on the rotation jam, John? Um, rotation I think John, <laughs> the rotation John, um, John. Now Philly's later in the tour. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, it works better than a lot of other rotation jams. Um, I think that they tried to, to, to my ears at least, they tried to make this music as musical as they could, though it does kind of get off the rails a couple times. Whereas like other times, like the Spectrum 96 or um, the, uh, what was the one that we just, um, the, the Virginia Beach 97, um, anything like that, uh, it very, very quickly gets into like weird territory and they're they're cool with it right they're just like let's make this sound weird whereas like i think they legitimately were trying to in this jam be like hey let's see what happens like can we actually jam if we're on each other's instruments the first ever i mean that's yeah. what fish that's what net says yeah and and brad sands mentioned he you know i think he said something like rotation jam could get really interesting depending who was on which instrument <laughs> which was mm. which you know that's there, a really there's good gotta point. be a Factual. there's gotta be a the, there's a, there's a ranking of each person on each instrument i don't know it offhand but there's definitely like preferred combos and and unpreferred combos but yeah really cool and and an awesome way to kind of you know continue this tour i mean it I can't believe that they played, what was it, like a few days in September, almost all of October, almost all of November, almost all of December, and almost all the shows are are worth going back to, you know? It's kind of amazing. Yeah, that's a good point. It's an incredible tour. Um, the the We're going wind it, to wind it down because there's a few shows left, but uh, we should st- stop in Nashville on the 29th um, and say that they... Played with Bela Fleck, and that, that I think, is... Uh, I remember getting those tapes, and I remember... You know, you always remember the tapes you get with, like, the characters, whether it's, like, an, you know, an asterisk or, or, or an at symbol or whatever with all the, you know, notations. Those are always always memorable. And this was one that um, I'm sure, Jonathan, you've listened to with, with a lot of the second set with Bela Fleck, which is, you know, not necessarily a go... a, a revisited you know, show in terms of jams, but kind of a cool, cool moment. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Bela Fleck, he's rad. The dude could really play. And in the era, we were all pretty hip to him, I think. Those, you know, at least my circle and uh, him coming out with Fish was just, hell yeah. And yeah. Uh, we definitely, I listened to this tape a lot in the 90s. I would say the set, second set closer's slave with Bela on banjo is uh, mm. is really cool and and that worth definitely worth listening to. But that was uh, interesting. I guess if you stop in Nashville and you have those connections, you might as well might as well get get Bela Fleck out to hang out. Um, and we should say that the latest Eric Krasno plus one has Bela Fleck on as the guest. Matt Matt edited that just just a couple hours ago, I think. 
Yesterday, yeah, it's one of my one of my favorite episodes. Fantastic discussion between those guys. Sweet. Um, all right, so this is complete completely not a coincidence that the next show, the last show of, of November was the very first episode of the Helping Friendly podcast and later, I think after Kevin Shapiro listened to episode one, six years later, made it a, a, li- a live fish archival release in 2019. But this this is <laughs> a hell of a way to... I've never heard it myself. <laughs> yeah, no one did until they listened to episode one of the Helping Friendly podcast, which you'll have to work hard to find. And is the, the sound quality is, is incredible. Yeah, you, you can find it. We'll send you a CD. Yeah. I want to see the notes from that episode. I know we had I have like it on one. a mini disc. <laughs> I think you had I think you had a lot of mental notes in that one, Brad. But the I would say that the, the sound quality on episode one of the Helping Friendly Podcast is only very, very slightly worse than, than the sound quality of what you're listening to now. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this last, last show of November eleven thirty. Um this is a a really, really, really cool show start to finish. I think this is like a kind of a quintessential 95 show. I might be biased, but um, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think you're biased, um, but it's good. <laughs> um, I, I will say this is mostly for your benefit, RJ, but everybody else out there probably would get something from it. The uh, notes on the jam chart for the tweezer are, this is what the hose is all about. So there you go, RJ. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go listen to it again. I want more hood standalone encores. That, and that's what I take away from this. Just that's it. That. Just one. Yeah. I think there's something to your point about this being sort of like the, you know, archetypical 95 show, because up until this show was released on Live Fish, there were no set list notes on this show at all. Uh, and now the only note is this show is available on livefish.com. When this when this show came out on Live Fish, I looked at the set list. I'd never heard it before. And I was like, well, this seems like a kind of an unremarkable show. Usually there's like something interesting beyond the playing. But then you get into it and it's like, it's a fantastic show. And kind of to my point about the Atlanta shows at the start of the month, there's nothing necessarily standout versus any of the shows. It just kicks ass from start to finish. Brad, why did we choose this as the first show? Because your wife's from Dayton? I think that was like one of the things I pointed out. I, I, I think we wanted an Ohio show for sure, right? And yeah. and um we didn't want to go to scientific. something we didn't want to go to something that was um you know, the ninety seven nutter show. So um I yeah, I, that's all I got. I don't I I, I honestly don't remember. I think it was about the tweezer because this tweezer is as they say, this is the hose, as I've always defined it anyway. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a great jam, but it's some of these shows in the, in the you know, 94 to 96 era, like it's all about the tweezer. So guys, any, any reflections after we uh, kind of went through all this stuff on, on, this, on this month? I want to go back. <laughs> actually, I, actually, the truth is uh, on Sunday, the 26th of November, 1995 is the day that I learned I was going to be a dad. So, uh, wow. this, this month holds a lot for me wow. And, wow. and the music is, is part of that. So these are great. Amazing. So I think when I reflect on this, I was just thinking about like expanding on what I said earlier about like they spent a week in Florida, right? The bigger picture there is they spend an entire month essentially touring the Southeast, which like these days would be like maybe two cities, maybe they do one or two nights in each. Um, and I was trying to think about like the impact that would have obviously like playing more shows are going to, you know, we all know this, the more they play, the better they are, the more fun they're having on stage, the more connected they are. But like, 
it's it feels to me like the stakes are lower at each show if you're covering so much ground in a geographic area because it's like you know, let's say on like a modern tour, the only place they were playing in the Southeast was like two or three nights in the Atlanta area, right? If they kind of whiff a little bit, that's a lot of people who maybe that's the only stop on the tour they're going to see or something like that, that, that are kind of disappointed. And it can also have a huge bearing on the momentum of the tour, which is like, as opposed to, you know, if you maybe don't show up completely in like Gainesville and you play Orlando the next night, it's like, whatever, man, you know, like we, we, yeah we did that. We're playing a new place. Um, and, and we have a new, a fresh start and there's not as many people who are kind of impacted by, um, you know, a, a lackluster show. I've got to think that that takes some of the pressure off. And this is me just projecting, but, um, I wonder, you know, if, if that had them feeling a little bit looser because each show only had so much kind of impact plus easier for the fans to kind of go from place to place or like without going very far, see a whole bunch of, you know, uh, shows within, you know, driving range of, of their home or something like that. So, um, it's just interesting for me to look at that stuff. And then of course the other side of that is that then December, which everybody talks about is when they go into the Northeast and the, the heat gets turned up a little bit, but that's a different show. I think that's probably fair to, to support your points, Matt. Number one, I think they're trying to spread their name a little more than they have to now. Whereas they'll play one show in, in Florida, maybe go to North Charleston or, or, you know, I mean, they used to do New Year's a little bit in Miami, uh, and they knew the place would be full. They know the place would be, you know, it's going to be filled. Whereas, you know, they go to Gainesville, and they're not going to fill the O-Dome. So let's go to a few more cities to try to um, make sure our, our name spreads a little more, I guess. I, I, you know, um, so they're still trying to do that. But the other thing I'll add is that they're, because they played so much, I like I like the fact that there's not pressure on them. I like that point, Matt. Um, uh, but also, they played so much that I think they think about it less. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's probably less thought into set lists, and um, it's notable that they didn't. I don't think they repeated a song at the Fox, which is a three night run, and something everybody would scream about now. Like, not scream about, but point out. You know um, that. But they were doing it back then, and I. I it wasn't an emphasis. It was just like, well, we've got all this material. We know it all really well. We're having a ton of fun. Let's do it. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's awesome that we, we, we separated this month from this really long fall winter tour. Uh, but um, there's so much within it. You know what I mean? It's not like you could separate each of these months and, and find a bunch to deal with. I also want to finally, I want to point out that December 1st at the Hershey park arena is also a, a live fish release, but it's one of my favorite live fish releases. And there's there's nothing really anything too special. Maybe the the Colonel Forbins and the Mockingbird, but um, it's one of I, I love going back to it. I think it's a it buried a live opener for Jonathan, and um, I wish it were um, November thirty first. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing to to both of your points that there was like there was a um, there was an interesting kind of like looking at this in this very specific month takes away from this like massive tour. And I think when they're on this massive tour, you're to, to your point, I think both of you guys were saying similar thing in that just like, it was just, it's easier to just kind of let go and just kind of have fun because also if they're playing between late September and late December, I don't know, 50 shows probably or something like that. I mean, they're just like, they, they probably weren't even thinking about what they were actually, you know, you're just like, you're just 
playing, getting on the bus, you're going to the next place, you're playing, and they're getting better and better, and some nights are good, some nights are bad, but more people keep showing up. Like It's sort of like a, it's an interesting thing about a long tour, whereas now for a summer tour, you get 20 shows, and it's like they show up on night one, and it's like, not that they have anything to prove, but it's a different deal when you're like, you have a very limited number of shows to really like do what you want to do, you know? Right. All right, well, this was really fun, guys. And for everyone listening, thank you so much for listening. You should give us a review on wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts or, or wherever. And um, we appreciate you all listening. We're going to have more cool stuff coming soon. We have actually some some big announcements coming, so just stay tuned for that. If you're still listening, I will tell you a secret, which is that um, Brad's beard is, is as beautiful as ever um, <laughs> and, and is, is bigger than ever. Um, but there are, other, there are other announcements coming, so stay tuned. And uh, thanks, everybody. <laughs> See you all soon. Keep on rocking. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.